The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The wellness community and Gildas Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our, our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Cancer, it's, it's a one simple word with six letters, two syllables, but, but hearing this word from your doctor can change everything in an instant. Time can feel like it's suddenly standing still and swirling around all at the same time. Uh, if you've heard this word from your doctor, you're beginning a new journey, one you may not be prepared to take. For someone who is newly diagnosed with cancer, beginning this journey is like going on a trip with nothing planned, no set destination, no means of transportation, no map to guide you. And uh, for this reason, it's no wonder that patients can often feel overwhelmed or struggle to participate in critical decisions regarding their care. In 2014, about 1.6 million heard the words, you have cancer, joining uh, nearly 13 million Americans already living with a history of cancer. Uh, Like what the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting is for Women Who Are Navigating Pregnancy, After You Hear It's Cancer is a step-by-step guidebook for navigating the cancer experience. The book follows the story of 11 different individuals on their journeys from diagnosis to treatment to survivorship. The book is divided into a series of easy-to-read subheadings and touches upon everything from cancer types to the responsibilities of caregivers. And joining us to talk about what to do after you hear it's cancer is the book's author, John Leifer. John has spent more than 30 years seeking to catalyze positive change within the healthcare industry as a senior healthcare executive, consultant, academician, writer, and most recently as a senior vice president for a 10 hospital health system. An outspoken advocate for patients' rights, John has published widely on the need for patients to receive appropriate, safe, and effective care. John's passion for advocacy was evident as early as 1992 when he founded and published the Leifer Report. A cutting-edge healthcare journal. Contributors included President Bill Clinton, former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, as well as Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists, uh, industry visionaries, and other key influencers within the healthcare industry. John has held faculty positions with both the University of Kansas School of Medicine's Health Policy and Management Program, where he served as the inaugural executive in residence, and at the university's William Allen White School of Journalism. In 2006, he won the Kansas Health Foundation Excellence in Teaching Award. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you, Kim. Appreciate the opportunity to be here. So, uh, so let's get started, John. Um, you know, as I understand, uh, you have your own personal connection to cancer. Your wife, um, Lori. Can you start by telling us your family's story? Absolutely. Our, our journey began on an Easter night in 2013, 
And Easter for my wife is a very sacred day, and it's also a day of great joy. On that Easter night, however, things were about to change. I had gone to bed a little bit ahead of Lori. She was taking a quick shower, and a short time later, she quietly slipped into bed. And then ever so quietly, my wife began to weep. And mind you, this is a stoic physician who's not prone to crying. And so I instantly reacted, I think as most guys would, with, what's wrong? What did I do? And Lori's Lori's response really took my breath away. She told me that she had found a lump in her breast that was two centimeters in size. It was cancer. Um, As I said in the book, I, I know that my wife's a great doctor, but I was praying that she was wrong. Unfortunately, she precisely diagnosed tumor uh, that she had discovered. And I guess the good news is that Lori's doing very well and she has an excellent prognosis. So, so John, obviously, you know, that personal story is you know, going to impact um, our whole conversation today and I think an important foundation um, um, for the discussion. But your book is titled, After You Hear It's Cancer. And I want to talk a lot about the book today because I think it's an important book for, uh, for our listeners to know about. Um, so let's jump into it. What do you do after your doctor tells you that you have cancer? It's, it's, it's obviously an overwhelming time. So, you know, where's a good place for our listeners to start? I think there's, there, there are really three essential steps after you hear the word cancer. First, despite the incredible urgency that you may feel to deal with the cancer and deal with it now, you must slow down. Mm-hmm. As Lori and I say, take your foot off the accelerator. Cancer is, a, cancer is a crisis, but it's one that needs to be responded to strategically, not impulsively. Yeah, some cancers grow rel- relatively rapidly. Others grow very slowly. And doctors use a fancy term called pro- proliferation rate to describe this. But regardless of the type of tumor you have, you need a measure of time to do your homework before you jump into treatment. The second point would be you need to assemble the right care team to confirm your diagnosis and to to recommend a treatment plan. And contrary to what many of us would like to believe, not all doctors are created equal, far from it. So you need to be methodical and informed as you begin to interview specialists. And unless you're diagnosed with a very early stage and easily treatable form of cancer, I think you're probably going to want to have multiple opinions about the best way to proceed. And then third... You need to look up at the standard guidelines for the treatment of your type of cancer. And that information can readily be found uh, from the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. They're at nccn.org. And if the treatment being recommended by your doctors deviates from the standards of care, you should politely ask your doctor for an explanation as to why. So these are not easy topics, but they're topics that I cover in, in great detail in the book. So... John, I think that um, one of the things you said that it's important to bring to people's attention is that um, take a beat. You know, you probably have a little bit of time to do this research, to explore, to get a second opinion, maybe a third opinion. And um, I know that a lot of times, as you say, people's first instinct is to just jump in, treat it, cut it out, do whatever you need to do to get rid of this. And, um, you know, one of the conversations we have at the cancer support community is around clinical trials. And I know that, um, you know, one of the things we suggest to folks is they, that they ask, you know, might there be a clinical trial that's right for you? But we also know that if someone rapidly jumps into a treatment protocol and then maybe they learn about a trial a couple weeks down the road, they may not qualify 
for that trial because they've already started treatment. I mean, is that one of the important reasons to, to take so, some time? That's an excellent point. Absolutely an excellent point. Yeah, you certainly don't want to disqualify yourself um, from being able to participate in a potential trial. You know, and the other thing to realize is that with certain forms of cancer, and I think prostate cancer is a great example of this, I mean, it's really a, a very indolent or slow-growing type of cancer. And most patients who have prostate cancer would die eventually with it, not from it. And therefore, there's plenty of time. In fact, the preferred method of treatment for many for many prostate cancers is what's defined as watchful waiting. I mean, it literally is just monitoring the cancer and ensuring that it doesn't become more aggressive or, you know, uh, proliferate to a point where it's, it's, it's a problem for the patient. Right, right, exactly. So I just, I think it's important for folks to recognize that because I think the instinct is to move and make decisions quickly, but making the right decision and, and frankly, making the decision that's right for you, uh, I think is so important um, uh, uh, to the patient. And also, you know, look, there's so much advancement happening in the medical world today and also lots of different biomarker tests and genetic tests as well that folks have to explore to make sure they're getting the right, uh, right kind of treatment for their for their type of cancer. Um, John, let's talk for a minute about the role of the caregiver. I mean, I, uh, obviously, you know, you've shared, you've got firsthand experience with this. It's National Caregiver Awareness Month. What does, uh, what does the caregiver need to do after they, they hear that someone that they love uh, has cancer, something that they can do right away? How do they go down that path? Well, I, first of all, I, I can't overstate the importance of the role of the caregiver. I think they're absolutely essential. And to me, you know, I often define them they're sort of like the Sherpas who help to lighten the load during a trek through a very difficult mountain pass. I mean, they are invaluable on this journey. I think they do a number of things. They provide emotional support. They provide daily living support. They help the patient when the patient's interfacing with the healthcare system. And that, and that could be in the form of doing things like taking notes or recording uh, a physician's appointment. And the other thing about caregivers that we need, that we really need to note is that not only do they provide a great service to the patient, but that they too need to be cared for. And we oftentimes see caregivers mirroring many of the um, signs of emotional distress, such as anxiety and depression that are found in the, in the patient. So the caregiver plays an invaluable role. We want to keep them as viable and uh, with optimal well-being as possible. And so we need to also care for the caregiver. And so I know that sometimes the caregiver, um, you know, really, really struggles with what is my role how can I help? Uh, how do I get involved? Maybe other folks in the family besides the primary caregiver also want to get um, get involved. So how, how important is communication in that process and really focusing on, you know, what the patient wants and how the, how the patient wants people to be involved? Well, I think the patient's needs and desires obviously have to come first. And the family or the, the friends who are acting as familial caregivers need to be very respectful of that fact. And understand that the boundaries that the uh, you know that the patient may create just to give them sense uh, themselves a sense of uh, both control and privacy. Um, I do think it's nice to have a singular point person. I think this is very valuable with the medical care team because they know who to turn to um, in addition to the patient regarding communication issues. And I think if you have this single caregiver or, or primary designee. Um, they can, again, take all of the information that's provided by the medical team and, and share that efficiently with the family rather than asking the doctor to make, you know, five separate phone calls to different family members. Yeah. Yeah. And so obviously, you know, that communication piece is central um, 
between that primary caregiver, between other folks in the family. I know there are a lot of tools, you know, that are out there today to communicate uh, with friends and family and, and, and uh, ways that folks can be activated and, and, and get involved and really support the patient um, uh, through the journey. John, we've got a, a couple of minutes until um, our first break here, but, you know, you certainly have a rich background uh, in healthcare, writing about health and, 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 and health policy. And, you know, was that, was that helpful to you when, when Lori was diagnosed with cancer? Was it harmful? Did you maybe know uh, a little bit too much um, in the process? You know, did that help you prepare for being a caregiver to Lori? I think Lori and I both probably knew too much about the, you know, the, the, both the functionality and dysfunctionality of our health care system and the hurdles that one has to clear to get efficient and effective care. So I think we both had that knowledge. Um, you know, I think my role, um, was probably with Lori was primarily to provide her with sort of a steady hand and, and a ready heart, and maybe a willingness to help in the way she deemed to be most appropriate. So for friends, I oftentimes find myself offering counsel regarding, again, how to clear the hurdles or how to ensure that they're getting the most appropriate treatment with Lori as a provider that was that was far less of a question and so so maybe it was a little bit of both a little it it certainly helped you in terms of your knowledge of the experience but also maybe a little bit daunting because you maybe knew a little bit too much well, I'm, I'm always chagrined by my encounters with the healthcare system, and I would like to have uh, positive and polite things to say about the American healthcare system, but I spent two years writing a book about what's wrong with it, um, in addition to the book on cancer. So it's, you know, I mean, it's a very tough system to navigate, uh, you know, which is just one more challenge for people who are already facing an extremely difficult or dealing with an extremely difficult disease. Yeah, yeah, I had a... One patient, John, described it to me as his five to eight job. He said he'd go to work at his nine to five job, and then every night from five to eight, he'd be dealing with paperwork, forms, uh, appeal letters, and things like that. So it certainly is can be certainly a, a huge burden and overwhelming um, for the patient. We're going to go to a break here. This is frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking with our guest, John Leifer, author author of the book "After You Hear uh, It's Cancer." John is an expert um, uh, in the medical field and also uh, went through his own family's experience with cancer when his wife uh, was diagnosed. We have a lot more to cover, and we want to dive into uh, what our listeners might find uh, in the book. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. 
Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, brought to you in part today by Bristol-Myers Group. I'm Kim Tibaldo, and today I'm joined by author and health advocate John Leifer. And I apologize for my mispronunciation of John's last name in the first segment. It's John Leifer. I want to focus our next segment more on your book, John, and why uh, some say it should be considered required reading uh, for anyone newly diagnosed with cancer. Uh, your book combines extensive research with real anecdotes from real people, including your wife, Lori. Um, can you describe what the research process was like um, for this Absolutely. book? And, and, and yeah, and just talk a little bit about why you decided to sort of combine the fact and the human emotion together. Well, let me, let me start with kind of a serendipitous thing that occurred. In 2009, I decided to go back to graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania, and my research focused on how to address the psychosocial, spiritual, and functional needs of cancer patients. So that proved to be invaluable, uh, when, when, when obviously, when Lori was going through her journey, but also provided a very, very strong foundation for the book. Before beginning the book, though, I spent another year doing it, you know, research on broader topics, you know, cancer-related topics, so that I really felt confident about the validity of my observations and recommendations. Um, but I wanted the book to be about more than research findings. One of my favorite quotes has always been from Sartre, who said, the heart knows reason, which reason knows nothing of. So I believe the best advice for patient is grounded in rock-solid empirical data, but tempered with the wisdom of, of the soul or heart. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really what I'm trying to do, do with this book. It, is, um, it, 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 it hopefully comes from both the head and the heart, and it addresses uh, people's needs at both a cognitive or intellectual level and at a, uh, an emotional level. So for, from a timing standpoint, you, did you decide to turn your research and, and, and interest, professional interest and experience into a book 
after Lori was diagnosed with cancer, or was it something that you had in your mind before that? It was something I had in my mind before that. Uh, Lori and I had had innumerable dinner conversations about her patients who were, of course, being careful to avoid any privacy issues. But Lori would come home and she would, she would share with me these stories that were just, I mean, frankly, they were heart-wrenching. And they were oftentimes about not only the, the, the physical travails of patients or challenges, but also about uh, their inability to pay for medication, their inability to get transportation to the hospital or to, to the cancer center, um, or a myriad of other issues that just made the journey so unbelievably difficult. And I think the thing that struck me the most was the lack of adequate resources to deal with these issues. And that, I mean, I, I would listen to these feeling like there's got to be something that I can do. I mean, this is, I'm, I'm passionate about advocating for patients. Uh, can't I speak up in some way to address the non-clinical needs of cancer patients that are going unmet? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... And how did you decide on the, the format of the book, uh, you know, a guidebook rather than, let's say, a, a memoir or, or something of that nature? Well, to me, cancer is a foreign land. Um, I think it's one that we hope never to visit. Uh, I wanted to maintain the metaphor of a journey and, and have the narrative of the book unfold pretty much as the, as the disease process unfolds over time. And I thought a, a navigational tool or a map was essential for every cancer patient, you know, particularly since this is a journey that no one plans to take and for which the de- destination is generally unknown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so let's break it down a little bit, uh, John. What can people expect to learn from the book that maybe they didn't um, know before? And is it, is it really just for someone who's just been diagnosed, or could it also benefit someone who's, uh, you know, been living with cancer? Oh, I, I think this book is intended for patients and their caregivers who are at any stage of the journey, um, as well as for people who, who know or care about people with cancer. There is a tremendous amount of information. It covers everything from clinical trials to complementary medicine and from side effects to, to second opinions. Um, in fact, it's been referred to as, quote, exhaustive, which I hope is better than exhausting. <laughs> so, so walk us through it in a little more, uh, you know, in a little more or detail, John, or, or take us down the path of you know, someone who's been diagnosed and, you know, some of the topics, categories where they can pick up your book and they can learn about these, these uh, d- different topics and different sort of, you know, buckets of, of knowledge that they can gain from this. Um, well, it, the, the book is fully divided into three sections. So there's the, the front end of the book deals with diagnosis, prognosis, treatment planning, and, um, you know, all of the issues that, that go along with that, and the, the, the questions that people should be asking their care team before beginning active treatment. There's a second phase of the book that, or second section, section of the book that deals with active treatment and covers, again, what to expect during active treatment, uh, the emotional roller coaster of cancer, managing side effects to the degree to which they can be managed, and also understanding long-term after effects of treatment, uh, the role of nutrition and exercise, and whether or not people should engage, for instance, in complementary medicine. Um, it covers some functional issues like you know, the financial issues as well. The third section, third and final section, deals with what happens when initial treatment fails. 
and there's either greater disease than initially anticipated, or there is a recurrence, um, you know, perhaps a discovery of, of, of metastatic disease. That was a, a much harder section to write because yeah. I wanted to make sure that we continued to provide hope to patients, despite the fact that um, their future might seem to be less bright than it than it once had been. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. goes all the way through to the point where a person is either a survivor on the journey or a person requires palliative and hospice care and must contemplate uh, difficult end-of-life issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just I want to touch on, um, on the piece that you mentioned before, you know, difficult topics, things, things like discussing hospice care and, you know, some of the end-of-life uh, issues that, um, you know, that, 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 that people certainly... Uh, certainly confront. And I know here, you know, even though we're obviously a professional organization, lots of professional folks who work here who've dealt with this many, many times, it's still a very, very difficult conversation. Um, I I read a statistic not long ago that says that the average length of of time that someone would qualify to be in hospice is 90 days, and that the average length of hospice stay in the U.S. is six days. Um, Do you think that that's linked to the fear of that conversation that hospice really means that that's the end, that we've given up, that it's a matter of days. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of misunderstanding about some of those end-of-life issues. I think there's tremendous misunderstanding. And having watched two patients die under completely different circumstances, one in a hospital ICU and the other at home under hospice care, I really I felt incredibly compelled to address this topic. Um, I'm passionate about the need for appropriate end-of-life care, and the patients correctly understand the roles of palliative and hospice care. Um, we need much more information out there. Of course, we have to be sensitive in, in providing that information, but people need to understand um, what, first of all, the difference between palliative care and hospice care yes. and the incredibly important roles that each one of these discipline, disciplines can play um, you know, either uh, during a chronic phase of the disease or, or at the end of life. Um, as, as an aside, I had a wonderful opportunity years ago to, to spend considerable time interviewing uh, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who a pioneering researcher on death and dying. And that, mm-hmm. that I mean, it's, it's so served to heighten my conviction regarding the needs for better end-of-life care. I just feel very strongly about this. Yeah. And hopefully yeah, that comes I- through in the book. Yeah, I think, I, I, you know, we certainly agree at the cancer support community. I think it's important that folks know all of their options and, um, and understand those options uh, uh, thoroughly and that we're, we're creating, a, you know, a, a space and an environment um, where people feel comfortable talking about the whole, uh, you know, the whole range of issues and the whole range of, of options that are, uh, are available to them. Um, John, we know that certainly no two people go through the cancer experience in the same way. Um, how were you able to sort of integrate that idea, you know, into your book, understanding the individuality of the experience and someone's own, um, you know, value system and, and preferences and priorities? How were you able to incorporate that idea but still offer advice that would be helpful to a broad range of folks? Uh, that's a great question, Kim. Um, first, I, I would argue that there is a definable process that virtually all cancer patients go through. It starts with diagnosis and treatment planning, moves on to active treatment, finally it goes on to post-treatment. And um, you know, despite the fact that the process is definable, there are a tremendous number of variables that make every patient's journey unique. The degree to which patients understand the process 
as well as the nuances of their disease, can make a substantial difference in their ability to collaborate effectively in their care. And from my perspective, that can make a big difference in quality of life or perhaps even outcome. So the book seeks to create awareness of the important signposts along the path that warn of the impending need to make important decisions about one's care. Mm-hmm. So, again, I think there are, there are things that are predictable about the journey through cancer, mm-hmm. and then there are things that make the journey unique, and one needs to understand both. Yeah, and just before we go to break, John, um, obviously one of the things that we've been advocating for at the cancer support community, and I think we're seeing real progress on this front, is the integration of psychosocial care into the medical standard of care for people with cancer. I mean, we're seeing the requirement now of distress screening uh, at many, many hospitals and, and medical practices uh, around the country. How important is it for folks to know that that needs to be a critical part of their cancer plan? Well, it, it's absolutely essential. I mean, absolutely essential. You know, somebody's uh, emotional state can have a, a, a dramatic, either positive or devastating uh, effect on their quality of life as they go through this tough journey. And I think that there is research that is slowly beginning to build regarding the potential impact of, uh, you know, psychosocial factors on a patient's outcome and yes. uh, our clinical outcome. That's, that's a lot softer in terms of research than, than the quality of life issues, but, but nonetheless important to note. So this is a vitally important element, and uh, patients absolutely need to be certain that it is addressed. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we certainly couldn't agree more just as we're talking about also palliation, about, uh, uh, about uh, hospice care, about all of those elements. They, you know, folks really need to be making decisions with their eyes wide open and aware of all of these different aspects of a, of a truly integrated uh, care plan. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're talking today with John Leifer. He is the author of After You Hear It's Cancer, really combining his uh, professional and personal experience to create a step-by-step guidebook for navigating the cancer experience. We have a lot more uh, to discuss today with John. Um, Don't go away. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're just going to take a quick break here, and we will be right back. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. 
The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, sponsored today in part by Takeda Oncology. I'm Kim Tibaldo, and today I'm joined by John Leifer, author of After You Hear It's Cancer, a book written to help guide people through a cancer diagnosis treatment options, finances, seeking second opinions, and, and uh, so much more. Um, John, how, if at all, do you think Lori's cancer experience has affected her work, uh, uh, you know, as a radiation oncologist, and, uh, for, and, and how has it shaped your work as a healthcare, uh, you know, advocate and writer? Talk a little bit about that from a personal standpoint. Well, I think it has shaped Lori's uh, practice dramatically. Uh, she shares, when, when appropriate, she shares her personal story with, with some patients, particularly breast cancer patients, and I think it creates a bond that would otherwise um, not be possible. Um, I, I always thought that my wife was an incredibly empathic physician. Um, I think she's even more empathic having gone through this. It's just, you know, it's 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 visceral for her. It's not intellectual. I mean, she knows what it's like to go through through the difficult treatment. Um, I think the other thing that is done for her uh, is to understand the balance, the importance of balance in life, and that you know, a, a, an oncology practice is very demanding uh, intellectually and emotionally and, uh, and also physically. And I think she's now taking a little time to take care of herself uh, with, without, without in any way um, minimizing her responsibility to her patients. So um, I think this is, she's gained, ironically, she's gained immensely uh, through her experience with cancer, and most of the cancer patients that I that I interviewed would say the same thing that they they really grew dramatically through this experience. Um, as for me, it only reinforced uh, a lot of the beliefs I had about the healthcare system and mm-hmm. and my you know passionate desire to advocate for better care and and hopefully to be a small part in uh, affecting. Uh, changes in the way that care is delivered, including integrative care and, and psychosocial uh, services. You know, John, I, um, I I do this show every week. I've been doing it for a while, and I, I love doing it. I, I feel like I always learn something new on every show, or maybe something pops up that, uh, you know, that surprises me. Through your research and, and, and your interviews um, and background for the book, were there things you learned that surprised you despite your incredible experience and background in healthcare, your wife's uh, professional experience as well. Things that surprised you, things that maybe caught your attention, took your breath away? Um, There was no surprise in the way the health system operated or failed to operate. I think the pleasant surprise was the level of compassion that I saw in technicians, nurses, some of Lori's physicians. Um, a, a compassion that went far beyond any kind of professional responsibility, and and it was clearly heartfelt. So that was, uh, you know, that was a nice gift that accompanied this journey. Um, 
but in terms of the lessons relative to uh, the delivery and receipt of care, uh, it was pretty much what we expected. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and obviously, John Laurie's story was uh, an important one for you to tell in the book, but the book also gives us a peek into the lives of some other patients as well. Can you tell us about some of those experiences, maybe a story that you want to share with our listeners and, and uh, what they might expect to learn from those stories? Well, what I would say is I, I had some incredibly courageous and generous patients who were willing to share their stories and do it in a very unvarnished sort of way. I mean, they, they put themselves out there. And I interviewed uh, people who were very diverse in their backgrounds, from a postal worker to a college professor and from a bioethics expert to a theologian, and, and learned a great deal in the process. Um, I, I, can, I can certainly share a story. What I, what I might suggest, though, is uh, it's because it's hard to distill these powerful stories into a soundbite, is that there's a video on the book website at afteryouhearitscancer.com, and it features four of the patients talking about their journey through cancer. One is a, an oncology nurse. Um, one is a patient who survived an extraordinarily difficult battle with leukemia, and then was given a 20% probability of, of surviving. And then her husband developed, uh, was diagnosed with stage 4 melanoma. So mm-hmm. she became a caregiver. Um, there is a pastor who cared for his wife for 20, 20 years during her journey through lymphoma and ultimately leukemia. And um, there is a story of a head and neck cancer patient and the you know the particularly arduous journey that he faced due to the uh, the complications of treatment mm. Mm. and folks can see those stories some of those videos that actually here it's cancer.com yes yeah there's a uh, it's about a seven minute video uh, you mm-hmm. can the, the front end of it is me speaking I would advise that you skip past that and get to what's important in the video which which goes on for about six minutes. Yeah, yeah, great, great, and um, and John, some of the the you know the lessons from those uh, you know anecdotes, maybe just a nugget or two from from those stories for our listeners to kind of whet their appetite and uh, encourage them to check that out. Yeah, I, I think there I think there are two essential lessons. Uh, the first is that an informed patient is an empowered patient. So learn all you can about the journey through cancer. And, and hopefully learn it before you need it. The second would be never lose sight of the healing power of hope. There is always something for which to be hopeful. Yeah, well, obviously, I think those are, you know, important lessons for, for folks to to certainly hold on to. And we certainly embrace that at, at Cancer Support Community and encourage people to connect with others who are going through the same experience and and uh, so they have a place to share so they don't feel alone so they don't feel isolated in their cancer journey and they're you know certainly folks come and and and, uh, and find hope you know by that sharing and by that connection with others um you know who are going through the journey i know uh john that that you address some of the sort of physical aspects of the cancer journey and some of the medical aspects of the uh you know of the cancer journey in terms of the diagnosis and treatment and that you also talk about the you know the social um and emotional sides of the journey just a couple of if we look at at the sort of being diagnosed getting the right information dealing with the physical side of the journey and then talk about the emotional side a couple tips pieces of advice for our folks on those topics uh, you know, I, I don't underestimate the difficulty of, of uh, dealing with certain side effects and also with the, the uh, emotional impact. Um, a, a very quick anecdote. I, one of the gentlemen 
that I profile uh, grew up in Iran, and when he was 18, his father, who at the time was a general in the Shah's army, put, on, put him on an airplane and sent him to the United States mm-hmm. and told him to have a good life, that he would never see him again. And the gentleman never did see his father again after the uh, revolution in Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, he became a sommelier, so he made a living uh, based partially on his ability to taste and, to, and distinguish between fine wines. And then later in life, he developed head and neck cancer. And mm. post-treatment for head and neck cancer, he lost the ability to taste. Um, he also had to go through treatment without being feeling the support of many of his family members who were either deceased or in Iran. So this was a gentleman who faced multiple hurdles, um, quite real physical challenges, uh, having hit one of his professional skills absolutely stripped from him and the lack of psychological support and he got through it and he got through it um, and is grateful today for having gone on the journey so you know people go through tough very very tough times and it tests their metal uh, but they oftentimes emerge stronger and John uh, we've got um, just a few minutes till our break here but uh, you know we talk about the the physical side of the disease, the social and emotional side of the disease. And you, you've touched on or alluded to at different points in our conversation, the uh, financial, practical, uh, employment-related aspects of dealing with a cancer diagnosis. I think these are th- these are maybe areas where when someone's diagnosed with cancer, maybe they're the furthest thing from their mind. Um, but I think they are things that can certainly sneak up on you very quickly through the course of a cancer diagnosis and, and you know, and a cancer experience. So um, when diagnosed with cancer from the early stages, how, again, some advice, some tips, how should folks be thinking about the cost of this care, about their employment, about transportation, about some of these practical things that can, can become critical really quickly? Well, I think most hospitals and a great many uh, large physician practices now employ uh, or have relationships with social workers who can be an invaluable asset in terms of dealing with some of these uh, significant um, functional and uh, psychosocial sorts of issues. So one should one should become aware of those resources as well as the various support communities such as those that you, your organization sponsors within a community. And be ready to tap into these resources to address problems like financial issues. Financial issues can be profound, particularly as the cost of cancer care does nothing but escalate. And if you look at the cost of, of the new emerging chemotherapeutic agents um, and the targeted molecular therapies, many of these drugs are priced at more than $100,000 know, per treatment cycle. Mm-hmm. And a significant portion of that cost may be passed on to the patient. And those astronomical numbers are almost unmanageable by, by, by most people. And as a result, we see, you know, an ever-increasing rise in the number of personal bankruptcies caused by medical expense. And some of this problem is avoidable. So I think that, you know, for instance, on the financial side, as patients face this specter of looming cost that, you know, impose a great burden on them. They need to talk to their physician 
and they need to say, you know, one of the basic questions would be, uh, first would be a statement about the impact of the financial costs, that it's something they're, they're struggling with, and a second, and the question that would then follow would be, um, are there other alternatives? Are there less expensive methods of treating my disease that have almost the same level of effectiveness? Or what am I going to sacrifice if I, if I try a different type of treatment rather than the one you're recommending? Or perhaps, what has the research shown to be the benefit of this particular drug? Because I know several years ago, out of 13 new chemotherapeutic agents, um, I believe all of which cost in excess of $100,000 per mm-hmm. treatment cycle, only one extended life by more than three months. Mm-hmm. So again, I think, I think patients need to understand what they're getting what they're paying for it. And they also need to be aware that uh, some pharmaceutical companies have programs that can help uh, defray some of the costs associated with their treatment. So avail yourself of as much information as is available on the topic. Yeah, I I think, I think what you're saying is, is, is really critical. And I think it, um, in some ways, it, it, it sort of reinforces the message that you as a patient need to be your own best advocate and you need to engage in a level of conversation in some ways, in a level of sophistication that maybe you never have before, but but um, really knowing what questions to ask uh, related to the cost, related to understanding your insurance, what your insurance will pay, and and really you as a patient engaging really in almost a cost-benefit analysis of the treatment decision with the doctor by saying, what is this going to cost? What's my co-pay or out-of-pocket cost going to be? What are some of the uh, other treatment options that may be possible that may be more affordable? And, and work with your doctor to really look at that data together and, and in a way that you as a layperson and not a medical person can really understand that data, understand your options, and, and understand what those trade-offs are because it really should be the patient who's making the decisions and choices um, uh, about those trade-offs. So, John, I think you make some uh, some important points there that um, maybe new, some new points to our listeners, but things for them to think about. Um, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're going to take a, a quick break. Uh, we're talking with, uh, with John Leifer about uh, his book, After You Hear It's Cancer, a guidebook for those uh, who are diagnosed with cancer and dealing with a whole range of, uh, of topics in the cancer experience. So um, you can check it out at after you hear it's cancer.com. We're going to take a quick break here, but we will be right back. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. 
links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer, created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, brought to you in part today by Genentech. I'm Kim Tibaldo, and today I'm joined by author John Leifer, and we've been talking about what you need to know after you hear the word cancer. Uh, in the final segment, I want to talk a little bit about the future, uh, John. After um, doing such extensive research on the cancer experience, um, what are your hopes and maybe what are your fears regarding the, the future of cancer care and cancer treatment? Um, my hope would be that our understanding of, of genetics continues to expand exponentially and leads us to new diagnostic tools and treatment that are far less invasive, toxic, or damaging to our bodies. And I think my greatest fear is that patients won't be able to afford these new therapies based upon what we're witnessing currently with the pricing of advanced chemotherapeutic agents. Uh, you know what we were just talking about. So I think we are. Well, I think we are truly on the cusp of a revolution. In cancer treatment, uh, certainly a, a revolution that will unfold over the next, you know, ten to twenty years. If we can only, if we can only manage the costs associated with it. Yeah, yeah, um, John. We we discussed in the beginning of the show a little bit about clinical trials, and and uh, you know, you certainly mentioned that only three percent of adult cancer patients um, are participating in clinical trials versus a, you know, based on the data, much higher percentage of patients who, who we know would qualify uh, for trials. How do you think we move the needle on that, and what do you think stops people from participating in clinical trials? Well, uh, you know, for the benefits of, of, of your listeners, um, NCI-designated cancer centers are seeking to have a, a bare minimum of 15% minimum participation in clinical trials. So the 3% number is actually quite, quite low. And I think it's very important to remind patients that there's no harm in asking your medical team if a clinical trial may be indicated for your condition. And as you pointed out earlier, uh, asking these questions before you begin active treatment because that may disqualify you. I think people are, they're often under the mistaken perception that the primary intent of a clinical trial is to find a silver bullet for their disease and thus sort of resurrect them from an otherwise dim future. Rather than the reason to participate in a clinical trial, first and foremost, is to help others who may benefit from the knowledge gained through the trial. So it's a way to give back. Um, if it miraculously proves to be a silver bullet, then it's an incredibly wonderful gift. Yeah, I think another um, another common misconception about clinical trials, about cancer clinical trials, is that I think when, you know, if you were to sort of do a, you know, a man on the street interview and ask people what they understood a clinical trial to be, they would say, well, it's a, if they knew anything, they would say it's a, you know, medical study where you either get the treatment or you get a placebo. 
And so I think that if the, if the general population's, you know, predisposition is that in a clinical trial, you're going to get a placebo, I think people don't understand that in a cancer clinical trial, you're not going to get a placebo. Um, It would be unethical to give someone with cancer a sugar pill and that in a clinical trial, you're going to get at a minimum the standard of care, but you may be getting what what may become the next standard of care. And I do think it's important for patients to understand that um, and be made aware that you're not going to get a placebo in a cancer treatment trial. And also, you know, the data shows that people who have participated in clinical trials have had a very positive experience and they think that they've been treated, feel that they've been treated very well and have had a good experience. Because frankly, when you're in a trial, it's likely that you're going to be monitored, you know, more closely um, than if you're in standard care. And I just think these are important uh, points for us to, uh, to make to folks. Um, as they're, as they're considering trials. Um, John, we've got 77 million baby boomers out there. Um, I think another thing that people don't realize or understand is the greatest risk factor for cancer is age. Um, I know we also have a predicted shortage in, in, uh, in the healthcare uh, workforce. We're going to be seeing more people diagnosed with cancer, fewer experts and, and healthcare professionals to deal with them. I, th- I think in some ways it means that patients need to be their own best advocates and that they, they need to be reading your book. They need to be coming to the cancer support community. They need to become educated and empowered consumers to take some control uh, you know, over their own, uh, own journey. So what are some of your thoughts on that? Oh, it's uh, people absolutely need to be personal stewards of their own health, and they need to become far more health literate, meaning that they can be relatively cons- uh, conversant and not intimidated by the language of healthcare, which sometimes is, to use a difficult word, arcane. Um, but they need they need to feel that they can come up to speed and, and truly participate uh, collaboratively in their care. Uh, they need to be aware of the lifestyle behaviors that they engage in that could have uh, very negative consequences to their long-term health and try and uh, adopt programs that will help them modify those behaviors. So, yes, people need to become, people need to be their own advocates, uh, hopefully both for the prevention of disease and also for the acceptance of cure when required. Uh, John, so again, congratulations on the book. Can you tell us um, what's next for you? Are you thinking about another book? Are you doing more writing about the cancer experience as a as a as a as a professional, as a consultant, as an advocate? You know, what what are your next steps to try to um, improve the experience for people with cancer? Well, actually, Kim, I sort of want to return to the research. So before picking up my, my proverbial pen again, I, I'm hoping to work one-on-one with cancer patients across the country by coaching them as they embark on the difficult journey through cancer. And uh, you know, my, my goal is twofold, one, to ease their burden, and then second, to gain more knowledge regarding what's most effective for addressing the challenges associated with their disease. Once I do that, then I think I'm going to have new knowledge in hand that I would feel prepared to, to write the next book. So that's, that's really the goal, is to, is to find uh, a couple of dozen patients with whom I may have the opportunity to work and uh, see what can be most effective and, and, again, making that journey easier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that, um, you know, there's going to be a lot happening, certainly in, in changes to to reimbursement, changes in, in, in reforms in, in the payment systems and, I think you're also um, understanding those changes and looking at different models and seeing what works and, and uh, what works especially for the, for the patient in terms of managing those out-of-pocket costs might be uh, an important part of, uh, of what you might learn, do you think, through those conversations? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I pray that we have transformational change relative to our payment system and other factors in the healthcare system. Yeah, yeah. Uh, John, I want to thank you for joining us uh, today. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. John Leifer, uh, author of the book, After You're Here, It's Cancer. Uh, we've had a great conversation. It's a terrific guidebook for someone who's been diagnosed with cancer, um, including some personal experience with John and his wife. Great background, research information, guidance on navigating the cancer um, uh, experience. I want to thank our listeners for joining us today for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Uh, uh, Just a reminder that at the Cancer Support Community, we provide a wide range of in-person, online, and over-the-phone support services to people with all cancers um, at any stage of their uh, disease. We also provide support services for the family members and loved ones of people with cancer Uh, If you visit our website, www.cancersupportcommunity.org, you can find a host of very rich resources uh, if you are dealing with a cancer diagnosis or someone you love is navigating a cancer diagnosis. Uh, You can find a list of our centers um, that are located around the country where we're providing support groups, uh, educational programs, nutrition, exercise, stress reduction, all free of charge. Uh, for the patient and and, uh, for their loved ones. Um, You can also call our helpline at 888-793-9355 if you would like to speak with a a licensed counselor. um, If you're having some challenges, if you'd like to speak with the counselor, if you're looking for local resources, if you're trying to find one of our centers in your community, you can give us a call at 888-793-9355 to find out about our free resources or visit us at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. I want to thank John Leifer for joining us uh, on the show today. It's been a real pleasure, and uh, we do hope you check out his book after you hear it's cancer. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. Support Community.org.